0: So um, Janice mentioned the moon and the, and the weather. I came into my kitchen this morning, and it was just flooded with moonlight. It was just beautiful. So I, um, I hope that you all are enjoying uh, seeing the moon. It's, it's waxing now or waning, whatever. It's getting smaller. But um, So when we turn on the TV and hear the news, there's one word we can't miss hearing, and that is misinformation. And we don't know what to do with it. We don't know if it's true or not. Uh, Usually it has enough truth in it that we're confused. But we can go to our infinite sources on the internet and find out what's really true. Hopefully. (laughs) But the best place to go is to God's word, right? Is this true? Um, But the Colossians, they were facing a similar problem. They were they had heard the gospel from uh, Epaphras, and as Julie beautifully explained to us about how, what the, the gospel and how they responded to it, they had faith in Jesus. But there were these false teachers, and they would take just enough of the truth and weave it around, and, and so these were new believers, and they weren't quite sure what to do with it. Oh, before I go on, do you, I hope you all have a handout. If you don't, um, they're back there. Thank you. So Paul wrote this letter to them to try to explain the truth about Jesus. And I thought it was interesting that um, he, the way in which that he presented his his presented God to them matched what they were saying was false. But before we start to dig into this and and try to understand it, I think we need to ask ourselves a question that Jesus asked his disciples. In the um, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they answered him, and then he said, but who do you say that I am? So in order to see more clearly why Paul says what he says and the way that he says it, we need to look at uh, briefly at what the heresy was. Here's my problem. I needed glasses. It was a combination of Greek philosophy and Jewish legalism with elements of Gnosticism. When you combine or merge religious beliefs that are distinct uh, to create uniformity to a new thought, that's called syncretism. And we see syncretism today in a lot of areas where they just take truths and try to combine them. It's sort of like cafeteria style belief building. They just take and pick and choose what they want from different ones to make a new one. Well, Jewish legalism stressed circumcision. And Old Testament Old Testament dietary laws, which supposedly helped the believers gain spiritual development and perfection. Rules and regulations define what was good and evil, and Paul addresses this in chapters 2 and 3. Gnosticism, the word comes from the word gnosis, which means to know or knowledge. People who followed this thinking were in the know, in the deeper um, things of God. Followers were promised spiritual perfection and spiritual fullness if they entered into secret teachings and ceremonies. Full knowledge was only for followers. The goal was release from earthly things so that they could be put in touch with heavenly things. They concluded matter was evil, but spirit was good. So a holy God who was spirit couldn't come in contact with matter that was evil. To me, a lot of this sounds like you just gave a child the ability to make up a story and see where they go with it. To fix this problem that they had, they built a powerful spirit world that connected mankind to God. Because remember, God is holy and he can't connect to unholy people that are evil because they're made of matter. So they had... uh, angelic forces and other spiritual worlds that they built and entities who impacted the lives of mankind. One intermediate being in the hierarchy of spirits was a lesser god, actually the name for it was Demiurge, who they believed was the god of the Old Testament. This lesser god had enough of spiritual creative power and enough of physical matter to create the material world. That's how they, That was their doctrine of creation. And since this lesser spirit created matter, this lesser God was considered evil because matter is evil. To a Gnostic, God is not part of creation because he is holy and cannot come in contact with matter which is evil. When it came to Jesus, what the false teachers were telling the people in Colossae, The the prevailing view was because matter was evil, Jesus couldn't have actually come in human form. He only appeared in human form. He only appeared to suffer on the cross. Think of it like a hologram. So they denied the incarnation of Jesus. The false teachers didn't deny Christ existed. There's that truth. But they dethroned him, giving him prominence, but not preeminence or supremacy. To them, Christ was just one of the many emanations or spirits that proceeded from God through which men could reach God. So Paul needed to remind the believers in Colossae what is true about who Jesus is and set them straight about creation. So please open your Bibles to... Colossians 1, and we'll start at verse 15. I hope you had a chance to go and underline all the words, all the times you found the word all. In my translation, I found it 12 times. By emphasizing all, Paul was telling the Colossians and us that Jesus Christ is sufficient, supreme, and complete. They need nothing else. So this first section, Christ is the creator, I almost call this he is, because that's another thing I would would encourage you to go through and Mark, how many times Paul says he is, and that's something that we can rest in, we can rest in who Christ is. The author, Ruth Child Simons, encouraged us at the bottom of page 43 to take time to stand in awe of who he is. So, I would like us to all stand as I read verses 15 to 20, please. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all things, to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. Thank you. You may be seated. Lesson two covers this entire passage very well, and I'm grateful, as I'm sure all of you were, that we had two weeks to go through this lesson and and really let it sink in. So I'm just going to pull out a few things as we go along and highlight uh, and, and give some definitions, things like that. So let's start with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Image means the exact representation and revelation. We looked at this verse in our lesson, Hebrews 1, 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in John 14b, Jesus tells us, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus repeatedly declares his deity. And it it reminded me of what C.S. Lewis said about Jesus. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And we can understand God by looking at Jesus. Then verse 15 goes on to say, Firstborn over all creation. Firstborn here indicates position or status, not time. Does it mean like birth order, firstborn? It means of first importance, of first rank, prior to all creation. Jesus is the firstborn of all because he created all things. Then in verse 16, we see, For by him all things were created. And we find this same truth in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So after Paul states that Jesus created all things, he then lists all the different categories of creation, such as visible and invisible, which actually directly addressed the false teacher's What they were saying. For instance, the angels that the Colossians were being tempted to worship that Paul mentions in chapter 2 verse 18 didn't deserve their worship because all spirits came under the authority of Christ. Everything exists in him, for him, and through him. Then we find the reference of firstborn again in verse 18. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Others have been raised from the dead. We all think of Lazarus, right? But Lazarus eventually died again. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead in a glorified body, never to die again. He is the one with authority to give resurrection life and in everything to have supremacy or preeminence. And preeminence, some of your Bibles may say that or it may say supremacy, means surpassing all others. Supremacy, the state or condition of being superior to all others in authority, power, or status. It has been said if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he cannot be Lord at all. Then we look at verse 19 and it says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Dwell here means, it's a form of the verb that means to be at home permanently. Remember I said that the false teachers didn't believe that Jesus was human, but that he was more like a hologram or a spirit. This was very dangerous thinking because Jesus is fully God. It says the fullness of God dwelled in him, and he is fully man. 2 John 7 says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such persons is the deceiver and the antichrist. And antichrist here means uh, against Christ. Jesus is God come in the flesh, both fully God and fully man. And because of this, he is able to do what no mere man could ever do, reconcile lost sinners to a holy God. The only arbitrator who can bring God and man together is one who is both God and man himself. I realize that many of you know this truth, but it's important to emphasize it. And there is very, there's so much more to understand to this topic. So one way to think about what is called the dual nature of Christ is on your handout. It's a phrase that says, not assumed or taken on or represented, representing, is not redeemed. So if you deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, then he is like what the Gnostics said, a spirit. He could not be like one of us and therefore could not save us by his death. For example, theologians used to argue this, you know, this this dual nature of Christ, and so they would say, well, he was a great teacher, so maybe his mind was divine and not his body. But then our minds would be saved, but not our bodies. We wouldn't be fully saved. Jesus had to be fully man to represent and to die for fallen humanity, if you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, then the impact of his death was no different than the two thieves who were crucified with him. If Jesus were only a man, he could not have saved the world, but because of his deity, his faith had infinite value, whereby he could die for the entire world. Both natures are necessary for a redemption. When Christ came, he took on An additional nature, a human nature. The two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. This is understandable but not completely comprehensible. So I know I threw a lot at you. If you have any questions, please, please ask. So as you think about this, the entirety of this passage so far and the su- supremacy of Jesus, um, let me ask you this question. How did some recent choice that you made about your time or money reflect Christ's place in your life? Now let's look at Christ, our reconciler. Let's skip down to verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Once again, Paul is emphasizing Christ was fully man, to refute what the false teachers were saying about Jesus being only spirit. And this is a beautiful truth for us to remember. Christ presents us before the Father as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. And that accusation comes from the evil one, but it also comes from our own destructive thoughts. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 23, if you, so you, you're you presented to, to, before the, the, the Father, holy, blam- blameless, free of accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This verse can seem confusing because Paul used the word if and made their salvation sound conditional. But in fact, Colossae was located in a region known to have earthquakes. And so when he says, move away or move from, this is a verse that this this can mean earthquake stricken. So he's saying, do not move from, do not be earthquake stricken. So another way to state this verse is if you are truly saved and your faith is built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ then you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. I just love how Paul related to the people of Colossae by even knowing about this about their area that they were earthquake stricken so he could say it in a way that they would fully understand. So When that inner voice fills you with pain, excuse me, pain and doubt, how will you change the message to reflect your true status with God, holy, without blemish, excuse me, and free from accusation? Now let's look at Christ is the mystery, excuse me. <clears throat> in the New Testament the term mystery refers to something not mysterious because that's how we think of it today It's something mysterious if it's a mystery but to something previously hidden that God now wishes to make clear but before we talk about the mystery I want us to look at verse 24 because once again I think this was a confusing verse so I thought we would sort of unpack it and see what it means so verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So, first let's look at, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. We don't think of anything lacking with Christ. But another way to say this is, that's not over. It's still, it's still happening. It's not over. And then when he says, in regards to Christ's afflictions, the word, here, the word used for afflictions was never used to mean Christ atoning afflictions. But what this word means is the affliction suffered by his persecuted followers. Warren Weersby saves us with, his, with a much more uh, clear understanding of this. He says, the sacrificial sufferings of Christ are over. But his body, the church, experiences suffering because of its stand for the faith. Paul was suffering in prison, no doubt, but he also knew the sufferings for the sake of the gospel. In 2.1, he states: I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who have and all who have not met me personally. This word that's been translated struggling actually means agony. He's in agony for them. Then we get to mystery beginning in verse 26. It says in 26, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, Then in 27, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that. The Christ in you, the hope of glory. I need to tell myself that every day. Christ takes up residence in believers and even the Gentiles who were previously excluded from the people of God. And then in 2.2, he says, "...in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And again in verse 3, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge." The believers of Colossae didn't didn't need to look anywhere else for other secret knowledge. Knowing Jesus is all they and we need. So what is the mystery? The promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news of his redemptive work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. The false teachers used the word mystery to describe the inner secrets and hidden knowledge of their beliefs. Paul told the Colossians what the true mystery was. Whose name does the Holy Spirit bring to mind when you think about sharing the mystery of Christ? So, don't look for it now, but all of you should have in your folder a sheet with the attributes of God. One side has Um, the qualities that only belong to God, and the other side uh, lists qualities that belong to God but can be reflected in us through the Holy Spirit. Of course, this is a very short list because no paper could hold a description of God. But what I'm asking is, in your quiet time, look over these attributes and see if there's one or more that you may be confused about or you don't understand, or maybe you haven't seen it manifested, and ask the Lord to show that to you. For me, it was God the Father. Because I didn't have a good relationship with my Father, I had trouble with understanding God the Father. I understood Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but God the Father I struggled with. Then years ago, I did the study of Genesis, and then I saw the long-suffering, loving, patient God the Father, the perfect parent. And when I made that realization and understood it and accepted it, I was surprised how much more my understanding was then of what I was studying. I needed to understand that attribute to sort of clear the way for me to understand deeper attributes of him. So I really hope that you will take this time and look this sheet over. Or find an attribute that's in our passage that you want to ask God to fully underst- help you fully understand. And of course, this list of attributes is also an aid when we worship and pray to him. Jesus Christ is the creator, the head of the church, and the beloved father. He is the savior, fully God and fully man. And in our lives, he is to have preeminence. Is Jesus Christ preeminent in your life? How would you answer Christ's question, who do you say that I am? Would the answer be the same as Peter's? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Sorry. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are before all things and in you all things hold together. Through your Holy Spirit, fill us with wisdom and understanding so that we may know your will. Give us courage to boldly proclaim the mystery of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening.